This is Radio Maria. And welcome to Philosopher's Corner with Professor John Rist. Hello. From ancient times up until now, the history of Christian doctrine and its development has always been a direct response to the challenges that the church faced at the time. From the Council of Nicaea, which was a response to the heresy of Arianism, the Council of Trent to the Protestant Reformation, and in more recent times, the Second Vatican Council as a response to the fast-changing modern world. Now, in the ancient world, when Christians realized that despite the destruction of the Jewish temple, the civil wars and social unrest in Rome and the guarantee from Christ of his second coming, the world evidently was not about to end yesterday. And it was amid this realization that the early Greek speaking Christians felt the need to justify the Christian faith to the outside world. Go forth and make disciples of all nations was the mandate from Christ. However, in order to do so, they needed to do it in an idiom that was understandable to contemporary non-Christian society. This is where philosophy enters the stage, and not only philosophy, but its relationship with the science of God, theology. Once we take a look under the bonnet and we see how, how the whole theological endeavour hangs together, how did the early Christians sell such a radically different idea? And who were the first patristic fathers of the church, and to what extent did they influence the doctrine and liturgy that we as Catholics practice today? So with me to discuss the development of Christian doctrine is Professor John Riss. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Eddie. Thanks for coming along. And uh, well, let's, uh, without further ado, dive in. Professor, could you give us a, a brief overview of the Christian world around the time of, say, the destruction of the Jewish temple in AD 70? Yes, um... Before that, the Christians probably generally thought that the world was going to end in their lifetime. There were certain large segments of the group who thought that. Not everyone, but most of them did think so. They associated Christianity with uh, Judaism in many ways. In fact, they thought that Judaism would simply change into Christianity. Um, the destruction of the temple indicated actually to both Christians and to Jews, actually, that the world isn't going to win necessarily. <laughs> the Roman Empire is going to continue. And the effect of this on the Christians was that they began to realize, well, if we are going to fulfill the Lord's mandate about preaching to all nations, and not just to Jews, that is, we've got to understand these people's mentality, understand how they think, and to order to fit our message, hopefully without distortion, into patterns which they can understand. Um, it was always a controverted attitude to take because there were always fideists among Christians, still are, of course. Um, and there were people who thought that philosophy was a waste of time. You should simply just say, just believe what we're telling you. The pagans mocked the Christians for this attitude, but the more intelligent Christians, more foreseeing ones, realized that they should ignore all that, get on with trying to explain their views, which are, in many ways, of course, were very radical, as so far as they could in the in the idiom of one or other of the philosophical schools of the day. Right. Okay. So this is around you'd say put this around the year AD seventy, give or take. I think seventy somehow was, was catastrophic in a way for for Judaism and in that in a sense for Christianity too. They they realised that the world was going to be different in the future. The world wasn't necessarily going to end after all. Therefore, they must get outside and preach. Mm. It might, must have been quite an existential threat when the destruction of the temple occurred. Well, yes, it, it, it was. Um, and the Christian community had to leave Jerusalem, probably went to Pella, which is now in Jordan. Um, they had to start again, in some sense or other, to, to rethink their principles. And Christians too, then, not just Jews? Not just, no, well, Christians were a kind of Jews here at this point. Mm -hmm. there, were, there, were, there were a few, obviously, at this stage, Gentile converts, but not very many. Um, even after the fall of the temple, and after AD 70, that is, originally, the, the obviously, uh, Paul and others add Gentiles, but there's still a very strong synagogue connection for some while later, later on than that, mm. dying out at, gradually during the second century. But nevertheless, um, 
most most early Christians, of course, not just the apostles, were probably Jews of some sort or another, or as people who had converted to Judaism, so-called mm-hmm. um, the believers. Um, okay. And they had to... Uh, the, this is a different world, in other words, from the world in which Jesus himself was actually preaching. Right, okay. So the early Christianity was actually, in fact, taught in the synagogues, right? Well, as Jesus himself preached in the synagogues, and... Um, one of the effects, of course, of the uh, split between Judaism and Christianity after 70 was that Christians weren't allowed to preach in synagogues anymore, so they had to find new places to do it, often okay. rather odd ones. So that's like the inception of the church for us then? Uh, the, yes, I mean, the, what you get basically after this is the development gradually of what we, call, what we now call house churches, and that is the Christian rites were performed in some in the house of some rather influential person, or it might be in some sort of public building, um, like like part of a bathhouse or something like that, place where you could accommodate a number of people. Okay. Would we recognise any of these uh, rituals that they, uh, they would have performed all that time ago as modern-day Catholics? Well, we'd recognise them, but though the, the form itself might be rather different, but we'd obviously recognise, for example, the Eucharist and baptism particularly. Um, <coughs> uh, the, the, the Eucharist particularly marked Christians out. Um, of course, you had to be baptised to go to the Eucharist, but when you were at the Eucharist, it was pretty strict. You had to be a real believer, committed Christian, to be allowed to take part in that ceremony. You right. could watch otherwise from a distance, but you couldn't actually t- partake unless you were a baptised and active Christian. And by active, I mean active, because you could get thrown out of the church pretty easily. Right. Okay. Well, doing um, the research for this program, um, obviously, Professor and I have a little um, little briefing beforehand and uh, go over what we're going to discuss. And I think the three major figures that um, appear on the scene, on the stage at this uh, early stage, or the first couple of centuries, shall we say, were Justin Martyr, Clement of Alexandria and Origen. So to what extent did these three thinkers influence um, the, the development of Catholic doctrine? Let's start with um, Justin Martyr, shall we? Yes, well, Justin Martyr is an important figure because he's the first Christian we know who quite deliberately intended to combine Christianity with philosophy. We have a record of this from his own pen, as it were, um, that he wandered around various philosophical schools trying to find out which was most suitable to explain the Christian message to non-Christians. He gives a detailed account of the various schools he visited and eventually decided that the Platonists, the school of, of Plato, though not quite what Plato himself was ever taught, the school of Plato was the most convenient and he should use that. And this was in uh, the city of Rome, yeah? the middle of the second century. Right, in Rome. Yes, he was in Rome, though he wasn't from Rome. He was originally a Samaritan. Right, right. okay. So he, he finally eventually embraced uh, as a philosophical structure um, Platonism. A kind of Platonism, mm-hmm. but of course, um, and here we have a situation which has repeated itself endlessly throughout the history of the Church. Justin liked Platonism and thought it was the most suitable for explaining Christianity in philosophical terms because it believed in a transcendent deity. Mm which Plato called the form of the good, other people would call God, and so on. It was transcendent. It was, therefore, it couldn't be pantheistic or, or polytheistic. It, it's a claim for a single transcendent uh, divinity. And with these other pantheistic um, schools of thought, and along with others, were around in Rome at the same time? Oh, yes, they certainly were, and Justin visited them, a number of them, and so on, and decided this is what he preferred. But the point is, what his problem then was, and it's, this is a problem which was repeated over and over again over the centuries, basically he liked to expound the faith in terms of Platonic philosophy as far as he could. But he realised, and his pupils realised, that you can't accept the whole package. You, you may like the, the overall principle, but there'll be features of the of the preferred system, in this case Platonism, which were not acceptable to Christianity. You had to sort these out. And the history of, of, of Christian thought, particularly in the early centuries, is very much a process of within a Platonic framework, within a, transcend, of, a framework of a transcendent divinity, you've got to find which parts of Platonism have got to be kicked out because they simply are incompatible mm-hmm. with Christianity and in particular, incompatible with the notion of the in, A, the incarnation, and B, the resurrection of the body. Right. Okay. So we know that Plato believed in the transcendent uh, divine metaphysical first principle, shall we say, but did he believe in a providential God? 
Yes, as far as one can make out, he did, and that was, of course, an attractive feature. Um, Plato thinks that the world was 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 ordered by God um, because he wanted to and because he was good. So the world okay. he produced is a, is a good world, and that includes the human beings. Yes, the, the gods for him are interested in human beings. That's the mark of being a theist in model in as we would call it now. Mm-hmm. Um, Plato, Plato talks about people who are called atheists, and they are people who deny, unlike him, who deny the existence of what we would call providence or God's concern for human beings. Okay, right. So. In terms of uh, heresies, how how rife was heresy in the uh, in the early Christian world? Would you say that the first hundred and fifty years? So we say, well, of course, the evidence is thin, but as you'd expect, there are bound to be all sorts of, of uh, ideas which were, in the end, had to be rejected. I mean, orthodox was orthodoxy didn't just appear from heaven on a plate, as it were. Right, you had to sort out what it was, and so there are all sorts of odd ideas grew up. For example, that Christ wasn't really killed on the cross; somebody else was substituted for him at the last minute. That's that's to that's because the ancients had to somehow find it very difficult to understand the notion that a god could die in some way or okay. another and then be revived. That's one. Uh, that's one kind of thing. Um, the other things will be concerned with uh, the role of angels, how they relate to the first principle. Others will be concerned with whether a man is naturally immortal or whether a man is immortal only by grace. All these things um, are not, you don't start with them. You, you work them out gradually as time goes on. In other words, orthodoxy is that which developed over time as a result of these various challenges. All right, great. Great. So let's uh, move on um, to the next uh, player on the scene. That was Clement of Alexandria, right? Yes. Well, Clement represents what used to be called a school. That's probably a somewhat exaggerated term, but he does seem to represent, though he's not the earliest representative of it, he had a teacher in Alexandria, which was at that point probably the cultural capital of the the Roman world, there was this what we would call as it were they did catechetics there and that meant studying the scriptures but also again um trying to explain to the pagans and indeed to other christians that you can talk philosophically about christianity um uh, by in in clement's time of course there was a there was still a, a rival philosophical tradition which you might want to use, and so he tends to get muddled up sometimes between the two traditions. That has to be sorted out later. That other tradition was Stoicism, which um, was attractive to the Christians because it was providentialist, and also, and this attracted them, some of them probably too much, that it was very austere, very severe, and uh, that, that that reflects the developing Christian notion of of, uh, of penitence, of repentance, how far you can go without being finally thrown out of the church and left on God's mercy. Um, the more rigorous at members of the Christian community were, were inclined to talk stoically, as it were, in this regard, about an extreme contrast between good and evil uh, in which you make some sort of basic choice one way or the other, and if you get it wrong, you're out. So, that yes, the... But um, the trouble with Stoicism, though, was it was really a, a, a it was really a materialism, or more strictly a vitalism. It didn't properly distinguish the soul and the body uh, in, a, in a way which was coherent with Christianity. So, in the end, it, it um, fell back into bits of the more extreme moralizing aspects of early Christianity. Is that what the reputation it had? Was that the reputation it had for being quite severe? Yes, the Stoics were regarded as a very severe moralists, and that the Christians were attracted to that, but of course a bit over-attracted in many ways. It led to ascetic extremism of various forms, which had to be sorted out. I see, I see. So how would you define Stoicism? Well, Stoicism is the belief, basically, that there is a single cause of the universe within the universe itself. Um, it's a kind of spirit of the world, or world soul, if you want to call it, something like that. It's a bit pantheistic. It's with, pantheistic, and right. there's no transcendence. Okay, so there's no division between the material and the, and the spiritual in that sense. Well, well, that's, say, that's why we call it vitalism. That, that is, the, the, the material and the spiritual, that distinction doesn't really exist. The world consists in some sort of basic substance, which in some sense is both material and immaterial. All right, but fused together. 
fused together, yes. I see, I see. Okay, okay. Well, look, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Philosopher's Corner. I'm sat here in the studio with Professor John Rist, and we are having a very interesting talk on the development of Christian doctrine. I think it's something that uh, every Christian, every Catholic should should know. And let's have a little music break here. You've chosen one song by... Marie Loy, could you tell us what that song is? Yes, it's uh, it's <laughs> vaguely religious. Um, I'm one of the ruins that Cromwell knocked about a bit. I'm one of the ruins that Cromwell knocked about a bit. Well, yep. to your choice. Let's have a listen. Yeah, where do you think you're going? Up the blooming pole. I'm very fond of ruins, and ruins I like to stay. You say I'm fond of ruins. If you saw my old maid, I went out in the country for a stroll the other day. But I like to study history and pubs along the way. I came across an abbey that was tumbled all the bit. It seemed a relic of a bygone day. A gentleman said, what is this? I said, excuse me, sir. I'll tell you all about it if I may. It's a bit of a ruin, the Cromwell knocked about a bit. Bit of a ruin, the Cromwell knocked about a bit. In the guy old days, there used to be some doings. No wonder that the poor old Abbey went to ruin. And those that study history sing a start of it. And you can bet your life there is a doubt of it. Cause outside the Cromwell arms, Saturday night, I was one of the ruins that Cromwell knocked about a bit. I showed him all round the ruins, then he went on his weary way. Well, all these little things are sent to try, thanks, eh? I should think this here thing was sent to choke me. You know, my young man said, this is, he said, dear Sook, I'm sending you a nice punk soul. Lord love it, looks more like a conger eel, don't it? That's what you get for being friendly with a farrier. Hold on, I've come over funny. Ain't you ever been like it? It's the sort of feeling that says, Look, it's time you had one. And that just reminds me, I've got a little drop of gin in here. Now, would you believe it? Someone's been at me bag. That's what you get for sitting in the long grass with a stranger. I'm a bit of a ruin, the wrong one off the bad of it. Bit of a ruin, the wrong one off the bad of it. In the sky all day, there used to be some doing. No wonder that the poor old Abby went to ruin. And those that study history sing a start of it. And you can bet your life there isn't a doubt of it. All right, I was one of the ruins that Cromwell knocked about a bit. That's quite a nice little toe-tapping number there. <laughs> that's great. 1930, that says over here. That's a... Oh, that was earlier than that originally. Okay, there you go. There you go. Well, if you've just joined us, this is Philosopher's Corner here on Radio Maria. I'm sat here, Edmund Zengeni, with Professor John Rist, and we've been having a very interesting talk on the development of Christian doctrine and before the break, we were speaking of the, the various influences and the, the major the major players. Getting briefly back to um, Justin Martyr, how hard was it, do you think, for him uh, to separate the good and the bad from Platonism and sell it? And uh, was, it, was it an easy process, relatively speaking? Well, we don't know, but it looks as if it was probably fairly easy. He immediately spotted, <coughs> as did other Christians later on when they were faced with the same problem, that there were certain features of Platonism, which I've already identified, which simply are incompatible. Um, but the, exactly the same problem comes up with Augustine. You see it, for example, quite clearly, um, where he talks about... Um, he realises that, that um, if you believe in the resurrection of the body, which you must if you're a Christian, that's incompatible with, with the notion that the person is simply to be identified with the soul. You see, the pagans found it easy to understand that the soul might be immortal. That was not a strange idea to them at all. But the idea that the body was going to survive in a resurrected form was to them absolutely outrageous. And yet, although it was outrageous, it was the 
central feature of Christian belief. Christ had risen in body and soul. And that was the hard bit to sell. But Justin and others seemed quite easily to realise that that was very different and they got to talk to the pagans about that kind of thing, why it was necessary to have this, because otherwise you weren't talking about the survival of the whole person at all. Right, I see. I see. So it's quite a radical, very radical idea in comparison to, to the times. Well, yes, as I said, in ancient times, if you don't believe in the resurrection of the body, you're not anything like an orthodox Christian. In mm. fact, in the early period, in Justin's period, you're certainly not a Christian at all. Mm. I'd say that's valid even for today, though, eh? <laughs> it is, despite the fact that large numbers of so-called Christians don't believe in it. Mm. Mm. But like uh, St. Paul said, if you don't believe in the resurrection, our, our belief is futile, right? Indeed, <laughs> and it probably is futile too, but <laughs> nevertheless, as they, yeah. uh, there's no doubt whatever that quite a number of people, including bishops in many cases, some of which I know about personally, mm-hmm. um, don't believe in it. They think it's impossible. They're in the position exactly of the pagans in antiquity. They might be able to believe in the immortality of the soul, but they don't believe in the resurrection of the body. Well, in ancient terms, that means they're not Christians at all. Right. Okay. Okay. And we were speaking also about um, heresies. And where does the uh, the Gnostics, not Gnostics fit into this, uh, this puzzle? Yeah, well, Gnosticism, it, we, it's the enormously disputed the origins of Gnosticism. It seems to be, and I emphasize the seems, it seems to have grown up in late Judaism. Uh, speculation about the role of angels, we see this in the language about dominions and powers and all the rest of it in, in, the, in Paul. That comes out of that world. Um, some people have described it as a, as a sort of sub-Platonism, um, which it always involves a multiplication of heavenly beings of some kind or another who are intermediate between God and man, um, over whom Jesus maybe might be one. Um, so sometimes you get the impression that Gnosticism is something like a peculiar nightmare that people have, all sorts of demonic figures around who are then reified and turned into features of a... The intermediate world. You see, the problem that that, that they had, the, the Christian teaches, is there's only one mediator between God and man, and he had to be God and man, i.e. Jesus Christ. But this didn't somehow satisfy a lot of people. They, 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 they thought that there must be some other complicated account of this. And as soon as you start speculating, you see, about what Jesus was like before he, or what Christ was like before the birth, before, before the birth from Mary, you're opening a door to all sorts of crazy speculations of kind, which about angels, powers, dominions, and so on, which you can fantasize about. But almost. they're impossible to answer, yeah? Yes, mm. and um, this problem was recognized. I mean, th- th- this is what Gnosticism is in some way. Gnosticism, you see, is a, is a strange word. Some Gnostics you could call Christians of a sort, but others were hardly Christian at all. But the, the, the main feature of it, there's an intermediate world between God and man, and Jesus will not necessarily be the only mediator in it. It also tends to the belief that there are two gods uh, or two powers, as it were. And in some, quote, Christian versions of this, this turns out to be that the God of the Old Testament is bad, God of the New Testament is good. That's a very common version of Gnosticism. It's a kind of dualism, in fact, right. which survived with Manichaeism, for example, and again into the Middle Ages, you get the same sort of ideas in Catharism in the 12th century and so on. Um, that that uh, Satan, as it were, it, it's, the, it's caused by how to, how to solve the problem of evil. Um, and uh, Christian Christianity was concerned with the problem of evil right from the very beginning, so there was a temptation, as it were, to kind of fantasize about how evil could be overcome and how, and this involved all sorts of construction of all sorts of weird theories, often with strongly sexual connotations, um, male and female mixing and so on. Mm-hmm. This is the origin of the myths about Jesus having an affair with Mary Magdalene, for example. Okay. That comes out of the same world. Right. I see. I see. Okay, great. So we've touched on. Um Justin Martyr, we've touched on Alexandra, Clement of Alexandra rather, and let's go move over now to Origin. What's, uh, I know he's a huge figure in the ancient world, very well-read man, knew his scriptures, knew all his ancient languages. Why is he so important to you, do you think, in this uh, in this development? Well, I think Origin was certainly the most learned Christian of the ancient world. 
And he applied his learning to defeating the notion that Christians shouldn't think philosophically and, and, or theologically. The distinction, incidentally, between philosophy and theology is not really a patristic distinction. Theology is really philosophy with further data in it. Okay. Um, and and this, I'll give you an example of this from Origen. Uh, he, he is a, he's a Platonist, too, of some sort, just as Clement was and Justin was. Um, and he's interested, therefore, the problem of evil. Why is there an evil in the world when you have a good God? This is a specifically Christian or Jewish problem. There is no problem of evil in, the, in classical philosophy because evil is just a fact. But when you once you get to Judaism and Christianity, in which the whole world is a construction by a God is supposed to be good, it then becomes a question of why is there evil at all? How you explain it? Origen is particularly interested in this question. I'll give you an example. He's debating with a Platonist about this, and he he says that this man, you don't understand Plato properly at all. You think this is the most important text, for example, of Plato on this subject. But I know better. This text is better. I also know, though, that the another philosopher, oh, he calls Chrysippus. He was a Stoic. He says he's he makes more sense about evil than anybody else in the ancient world. Unfortunately for us, of course, although we know about the book he's talking about, this book doesn't survive, so we can't really tell what Chrysippus' argument was. Anyway, Origen goes on to say then, yes, Chrysippus is a great philosopher. We need to think about what he says. But in the end, he failed to solve the problem. Why did he solve it? Because the problem can only be solved if you have data which cannot be discovered by the rational mind, has to be revealed. That is, any pagan is bound to be unable to solve the problem of evil. Only a Christian or some other kind of monotheist may be able to solve it. In the case of Christianity, Origen's answer is, you can't solve the problem of evil unless you know something about the fall of the angels. And the fall of the angels um, is not something you could work out by rash, ordinary philosophical thinking. So Christians have to think about this. They have to identify how far they can go with philosophers. They have to recognise that the philosophers on some key issues, particularly the problem of evil, run into a brick wall. Then you ask yourself, how do you get out past the brick wall? The answer is you'll then find that revelation will give you the answer to these particular problems, in particularly that very basic problem. I see. What was, um, <clears throat> excuse me, Plato's overall response to the problem of evil? It's just a fact, and 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 uh, it, it's largely caused um, by just a, some weakness in human beings. At one point, he thinks it's caused by the body. Then he gets more sophisticated. He thinks there's something wrong with the soul. He has a notion of a vagueness because of a form of man, fall of man, which actually means the fall of the soul. There's something wrong with the soul, and that's why there is evil in the world. So there's Plato evil. was writing this already way before Augustine or Christianity? Oh, yes. So, I mean, Plato, Plato is very strange in this regard. He foresees a whole number of things. He hasn't got any revelation, of course, but he, he has a theory of the, in the sense of the fall of man, which actually is older than him. It goes back much older into Greek times, into other early mythologies. Yes, there is a sort of, there's something wrong with human beings, according to Plato. He doesn't know why it happened. He, he can't explain it, but it's a fact. Um, and um, you just have to accept it. But it's you can purify the soul. The soul can be separated out from its bad elements, and you can choose to live a good life or not choose to live a good life. Of course, there's no theory of grace involved in this. You can do it on your own, as all ancient philosophers or classical philosophers thought. Okay, all right. Great. Well, I'm trying to... Endeavor, I'm going to endeavour to move along chronologically over the time period of uh, of Western theology and philosophy. So, um, Origen, he was when, when was he around? Would you date him? Origen, mm. uh, mid third century. Okay, great. So that's pushing us towards where I'd like to go anyway, and that brings us up to um, the Council of Nicaea and uh, the the heresy of Arianism, which was obviously quite a huge deal, and uh, I think most Catholics know more or less what that was about but um could you give us a bit more of a background and of the of the of the yes, situation the, 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 the most important feature of the background <coughs> is the opening of John's gospel where he says in the beginning was the logos that tell now if you say that to a greek in this period there are two possible things that, that could mean normally and particularly in platonic circles this means in the beginning there was a Logos, and the Logos was the 
representation of the Father, of a higher being. So, in other words, the Logos is going to be subordinate to the Father. Like a lower manifestation. A of lower it. manifestation, yes. And uh, Origen, who reads John's Gospel in that way, of course, was in that sense a proto-Arian. Um, right. He, he thinks that, yes, he does subordinate Christ, um, not in the same way as Arius does, but he thinks that's what John teaches in the Gospel. Um but there is another uh, version of what logos could mean. Uh, it's, 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 it's not particularly theological, but it relates to uh, some ideas which were particularly uh, around in Stoic, Stoic theories of language, theories of speech, and so on. The Stoics thought that what you think, when you utter it, the, 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 the spoken word represents exactly the, the thought behind it. In other words, they're both called logos, and but the the expression, I let's say in theological terms, Jesus, is going to be the same as the original thought you can call the Father. So if you read the logos in that way, it won't give you a subordinationist position at all. It'll imply that an, e- an equality in some sense between the first principle and the logos. They're mm-hmm. not subordinated. Mm-hmm. Origen didn't think that was the right interpretation of logos, but it is a legitimate one. It was around. And the version that comes up in Nicaea is much nearer to that kind of account of what it means to say in the beginning was the Logos. That is, it enables you to have what I suppose the Anakins would call a high Christology. I see. So, is it, will I be right in saying that um, Arianism adopted the Logos as a, a subordination of the yes, of uh, divine God? Yes, they did, and they thought they were following Origin, a number of other people too. This is an interesting point because, you see... Origin is a subordinationist in this regard, but nobody noticed it. Okay. Only later on, a hundred years later, roughly, when Arius openly challenged his bishop on this specific question, did the church think, we've got to sort this out one way or the other? And that's why there was the Council of Nicaea. Right, so Arianism was coming out of, of what Origen had written before. Well, it's coming out of all sorts of ideas. See, before Nicaea, there were, things were pretty muddy about the relationship between Jesus and, and the Father. I've been uh, a very good and I would say very reliable patrologist once told me that he couldn't think of any pre-Nicene writer to whom you couldn't find some trace of subordinationism. Right. It was just in the air. It hadn't been thought through. What Arius did was to compel people to think about whether he was right or whether the bishop was right on this issue. And um, this was also, of course, a very political question because one of the reasons why Constantine uh, adopted Christianity was that he wanted to unify the empire. Mm -hmm. The last thing he wanted was the Christians to start brawling among themselves. So he decided to call this council and, and, and get the things sorted out one way or the other. In fact, he came to the conclusion eventually they'd come up to the wrong answer, but that's another question. Right, okay. Do, do you know any who were the major players in that council? Who were the major influences who, uh, who put their name to the to the document? Well, the, I mean, the, the, the original bishop who was challenged was called Alexander. He was Bishop of Alexandria. Uh-huh. Uh, his successor was Athanasius, who actually, oh, more course. than anybody else, was responsible for what happened at Nicaea. But he was assisted ably by a man called Ozias, who was Bishop of Cordoba in Spain. Ozias was a kind of court chaplain, I think, for Constantine, for the emperor. And, and that meant that he, he was chairing the Council of Nicaea. And if, you cha- if you're chairing a council of that sort in the ancient world and the proceedings are modelled on the proceedings of the Roman Senate, as this was, you can control the agenda. And that's exactly what Ozias did, so that what was put forward by the official party, I Athanasius and his friends, was that what was on the table. You had to accept it or reject it. You couldn't amend it unless it, that was approved by Arius. In fact, there is a story, which it might well be true, it comes from Ambrose, actually, writing admittedly later. He says that the word consubstantial, or the Greek equivalent of that, homoousios, was specifically introduced into the creed by Athanasius and others, Osius, because they knew that the Arians could not accept it. So we're driving them out, in fact, and they were driven out originally, excommunicated in effect. Um, that, so, um, yes, uh, uh, the, the, the politics of it are extremely important. That's how the Holy Ghost works on these kind of occasions, as mm. it were. Mm. Um, it, it, it's in human terms. Um, uh, you can see exactly why they did it and how it was done. Um why did the Arians so object to the word homo, you were just consubstantial? Well, they had a good argument. Their argument was, 
you can't, this word can't be right because it's not in the Bible. It's not a scriptural word. So here we've got another philosophical question. Can you introduce a word which has strong philosophical connotations and represents an idea which is obviously possibly Christian but isn't biblical? Mm. The Yerians refused to accept that. You couldn't have a creed which didn't entirely use biblical language. I see. I see. Oh, okay. And um, what... Would it be fair to say that in, it was a Council of Nicaea that solidified the doctrine of the Trinity once and for all, and made it very clear? Or It began to, um, but the formula we use now, of course, is, is from the Council of Constantinople at the end of the century, mm-hmm. uh, where there's more emphasis, well, there's the, the, what he says about the relation of the Son and the Father is clarified somewhat there compared with the original version, and also there's an emphasis on the Spirit, which, which is there originally, but unthought out. But here again, you have a question of how doctrine develops. Theories about the relationship between Christ and the Father precede those about the Spirit. But in between Nicaea and the end of the 4th century, they began to talk about that too, because some people wanted to make out that the Spirit was inferior. Um, This was rejected in Constantinople, and the result of that was more or less the creed that we have now. Right, okay, well, there you go, there you go. So, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Philosopher's Corner, live here from our studio in Cambridge with Professor John Rist and me. And, Professor, do you want to introduce the second piece of music that you've chosen this afternoon? Yes, I like something uh, very different from the first one, something from Bach's first Brandenburg Concerto. And just to let you know, if you'd like to phone in and ask a question, the number's 01223 three seven five five six four that's oh one two two three three seven five five six four we'll be back after this music break
This is Radio Maria. Very warm welcome back. If you've just joined us, this is Philosopher's Corner. I'm sat here live in our studio with Professor John Rist, and we've been talking about the development of Christian doctrine over the centuries. So, Professor, we've um, had a look at the beginning and uh, the very first major steps that were taken forward in the, the development of um, of Christian doctrine and uh, who those people were. We, we left the last break at the Council of Nicaea. We're slowly pushing in now to the uh, to the early Middle Ages and uh, the fall of the Roman Empire. What would you say were the, the main distinguishing features of uh, medi- medieval doctrinal development? Well, I'll only talk about the West because it was rather different in the East. I guess so, yeah. In the West, you've got to remember, first of all, the figure of Augustine. He dominates the medieval period. Everybody in the Middle Ages is an Augustinian in some way or another. Um, they may differ about it, but they all claim that Augustine is the, the big man in theology, as it were. Um, that's the first point. The second point, though, in general, about medieval... Well, there are two other points I'd like to mention. One is the separation of philosophy and theology, which happened in the 12th, 11th and 12th centuries. Originally, I would say, almost out of a turf war. And personally, I regard this as a serious mistake in the history of, the, of, of these things. That separation, you said? Yes, they were taught, I mean, taught in different faculties. In the, ancient, oh, okay. in the ancient world, the same person would go on talking about philosophy and, and theology, Origen, Clement, Augustine, Ambrose, all of them. There's no real distinction between philosophy and theology at all, except that theology has much more data, as I said before. But it means that in, if you talk seriously about theology, you've got to know quite a lot of philosophy. The long-term effect of the separation of the two, I won't say this happened in the Middle Ages, but it certainly happened since, was that people thought you could do theology without philosophy. This leads to the production of theological claptrap, very largely, right. unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And we have too much of it now, and that's because of the decline of philosophy in the seminaries, as far as Catholics are concerned. Okay, all right. So there's been um, a, a decline in, in philosophy in the seminaries, which has uh, had a knock-on effect, a detrimental knock-on effect for uh, the development of theology today. Uh, well, yes, you see, what happened at Vatican II was that people rightly complained that the philosophy was lousy. It was a sort of potted manualized version of Thomas, which wasn't very close to Thomas in many ways, a set of propositions. They wanted to get rid of that, um, which they did. And the, set, the trouble was they didn't know what to substitute for it. Right. So they, they more or less discouraged people from thinking at all um, in, in, in seminaries or thinking that theology didn't involve any serious thinking, which is, of course, a complete betrayal of the ancient and medieval tradition. Right. Well, before we jump uh, too far into the future, um, for, as far as the Middle Ages is concerned... What influence did uh, the medieval doctrinal development have over things like the liturgy? Well, I think the principal difference between medieval Christianity and patristic Christianity, that, that is, apart, of course, from the question of Augustine dominating the medieval period, mm. was the increasing emphasis on the sacraments, particularly on the sacrament of the altar. The, 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 more than anything else in theology, the medieval period contributes to the, what we now refer to as the seven sacraments. Even the word sacrament, you see, means something different, let's say, in the Middle Ages from what it meant in Augustine. Um, there, isn't a, there aren't the seven sacraments in Augustine. This is one of the reasons why the Protestants claim that the only real sacraments are baptism and the Eucharist, because... They were the emphasis. They were the, the emphasis was on them so much in the early period, um, but in fact the Protestants got this wrong because so far from actually narrowing the meaning of the word uh, sacrament, the, the the ancients had a much wider view of it. According to Augustine, for example, uh, any act which brings God into the human soul is a sacrament, um, and he says that he will say, for example, things like that. Uh, that circumcision is the sacrament of the Jews because it brings God into the human life. So this is a very much more informal account of what it means to be a sacrament. The medieval period sorted it out, systematized it, if you like, and produced a, a very great in, in, increased, hugely increased emphasis on the sacrament of the altar, i.e. on the Eucharist. Okay. Um, was it difficult for these theologians at the time to build on top of a doctrine without any mention of these new sacraments of an ancient scripture and revelation, was it was it hard for them to justify that? They didn't need to justify it because nobody really knew the history. <laughs> that they simply did what they thought was the tradition, and in many ways, of course, it was. 
but they, they were unable to, they couldn't, they didn't know their patristic sources because these weren't available to them in many cases. I mean, they, they had, or, had, if you consider, um, for example, Anselm writing in the 11th century. Okay. We know about his library. Apart from the Bible, the only other books he had pretty well were large amounts of Augustine and a few other bits and pieces of Jerome or Ambrose. His reading was very, very limited, um, and therefore it made it easier in a way to package the thing without getting into the details. They simply didn't know how these ideas were worked out in the patristic period, so they had to do it by free willing, really. So you, you, you say we know more now than they knew then far of, more, of yeah. the ancient world. Yes, far more. Um, I mean, if we take, so in, uh, say, a writings like Clement of Alexandria, let's say, weren't, weren't read in the West in the medieval period. All of, even all of Augustine wasn't read in the medieval period. Uh, huge amounts of ancient Christian writing were simply unknown. There was more were known in Byzantium, at least if they were in Greek. But there it went the other way. They didn't know the Latin writers. So despite the fact that these, some of these huge major colossal figures in, in early Christian the- theology were not studied by medieval theologians as much as we know now. That's right. <laughs> but everything tallied up shall we say, well, what they what they contributed yes, was mean, a logical progression from it, even if they didn't have the uh, the availability to the original texts. Well, you see, part of the arguments that went on in the medieval schools depended upon the fact of which text of Augustine you'd actually got. Um, so that if you, have, if you have one text, you might come up with one view. If, you did, if someone else didn't have that text but had something else which was contradictory to it, uh, you come up with a different view. See, the thing is that um, the, the ancients, the medievals thought that writers basically worked on the principle of one head, one mind. But that's completely wrong, for example, for Augustine, as it is, of course, for many other people. Augustine tells us quite specifically that if you read his works in chronological order, you can recognize the development of his mind. But nobody hardly knew that text, or those texts, two or three texts like that. Um, and when they did know them, they just ignored it. They assumed that Augustine was a systematic thinker in the way that they wanted to produce systematic theology. But he isn't. He's basically an exegete, a preacher, and so on. It, you can't really systematize Augustine by putting everything together and say that's Augustine's a system, because if you did that, it would contradict itself. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, let's fast forward a little bit now with the time we've got left, which is not that long, and up until the, uh, the Council of Trent, which is obviously... A huge, massive council, which was a response to the uh, the Protestant Reformation. Yes, could you sort of unpack the circumstances in which that was uh, that was originally nested in? Well, you've got to understand what the what the Protestant Reformation was. It started with Luther complaining to his bishop that he didn't under, that he thought the church was wrong about a number of issues. Protestantism got more and more extreme as it went on. Uh, Luther doesn't deny the real presence, for example. Okay. Uh, Calvin does. Um, by the time you got to the Council of Trent, it was quite clear that it was a sort of alternative church. Uh, primarily, they meant the Reformed Church, i.e. Calvinism, rather than Luther. But they would, you can bundle it all together in mm-hmm. some ways. Um, and this was thought to be intellectually much more sophisticated than the old Catholic stuff. You've got to remember that but in the time of uh, the Reformation, quite a lot of people who were Orthodox Christians, like Thomas More, for example, Erasmus, were pretty fed up with what was going on in the school, medieval schools. They thought a lot of uh, silly logic chopping going on had replaced real thinking, that the, the spirituality had disappeared, you've got to call it arid theology and so on. Almost, in a way, the same kind of problems that arose, as arose before the Vatican Council. The complaints of people like Moore and Erasmus about medieval theology, meaning late medieval theology, are really, really quite close to the complaints made about by some of the smarter uh, reformers, uh, Catholic reformers in Vatican II, like to Lubeck and Ratzinger and so mm-hmm. on. They were both complaining about things become arid, it's become sick, it's become packaged, propositionally based, um, lack of spirituality, almost a lack of reference to Christ himself. Right. These charges were made both in the, by the by Catholics in the Reformation and by, of course, Catholics at Vatican too. What would you say was the most distinguishing feature of the, the, the Council of Trent? Was it the reaffirmation of the Eucharist and the, the yes. real presence? I, I think the, um, 
Well, it, there are two things. Yes, the the the, the the notion of the single unified church uh, with the apostolic succession going back to Christ um, in some form or other. They, they didn't understand where it was wrong. They thought that Peter was actually a bishop in the, or a pope even, but of course he was never called a pope in his own lifetime. Um, nevertheless, there's some kind of apostolic tradition that does go back to very early times. Uh, that, so that was one thing that they had to be re-emphasized against the Protestants. The other one was again this the emphasis on the nature of what happens in the in the Eucharist, the real presence in, in, in uh, as described through um, Thomistic theology to give a philosophical explanation of it. Um, so what it was in a sense was the reaffirmation in some form of what was always done against novelties, um, and uh, they without realizing what was happening, they realized that the, that the um, in some sense they realized that the, what the Protestants were doing were as it were, demythologizing Christianity. Um, and, of course, that went on. Uh, the, the more you demo, demythologize it, the more you get into the more forms of modern Protestantism, where there isn't, isn't any theology at all, merely a, a kind of a social working group, as it were, who mm. used the name Jesus. Uh, once you've got to that stage, you're miles away from what anything traditionally was called Christian Christianity. I think that fathers of Trent understood that this was happening in a way, but they, they didn't formulate it. They did, you couldn't do it because it was happening all around them. You could have, these things were only understood by hindsight. Right. Professor, I'd love to carry on this conversation because I'm uh, learning a lot and uh, I wanted to take it up to a bit more modern times as well, but I'm afraid we're running out of time, so we might have to do a, a part two of this one. And I uh, wanted to bring it up to more of the, the modern times and, uh, like I said in, a, in, in the beginning, the development of Christian doctrine has always been a direct response to the challenges of the church face at the time. So it would be interesting uh, maybe to uh, unpack what's happening in, uh, in contemporary society. But for now, I'd like to say thank you very much for joining us and for tuning in. I'd like to thank you, Professor, for coming along. Well, thanks very much indeed, and I apologise for, for trying to oversimplify things which simply can't be discussed too simply in 45 minutes. Well, until the next time.